Hello, and welcome to Minnesota Tapfish, today's evidence for tomorrow's pediatrician. This is a brand new podcast coming to you from the chief residence at the University of Minnesota. Go Gophers! Woo. My name is Dr. Kate Pollack. And I'm Dr. Heidi Moline. Welcome to our first podcast. I'm very excited. Me too. So why did we pick the name Tatdish, Kate? Good question. Tatdish, which I didn't know before moving here, is not only a delicious Minnesota layered delicacy, but also your resource for pediatricians in training. We are going to break down the basics of evidence-based pediatric practice. So today's flavor of Tatdish is going to give you the EBM tools of your dreams. Wait, what does EBM stand for? So it stands for evidence-based medicine. It is the why behind what we do. It is the way we should all be practicing, really. So in today's Tot Dish, we'll be giving an overview of study design. Let's just dive in. There are a lot of different study types, and yet I still have so many questions. Me too. What are your questions? Well, why do we care about study design? How does the study design affect my work as a pediatrician? I have the same questions. So let's try to answer some of those. Let's start off by talking about that there is a hierarchy to the quality of evidence in different study designs. So that basically translates to how confident are you based on the study design of your answer. Cool. We're going to start with case reports, which are all the way down at the bottom of the pyramid. These are anecdotal individual cases or groups of similar cases, which in that case are called case series. So it's what medical students love to write. It's like that episode of House where the old woman gets ductal carcinoma in her knee, knee boob cancer. Oh boy, <laughs> that sounds rare. It's not real. Okay. <laughs> but it is a good example to help you remember what a case report is. Something rare with limited evidence or guidelines. Cool. So what's next up the hierarchy? Next up the hierarchy is cross-sectional studies. So in these, we do not follow individuals over time like we do in cohort studies, which we'll get to later. These studies are a snapshot in time. Think about a medical study looking at the prevalence of cancer amongst a certain population. So researchers can evaluate people from different ages, uh, ethnicities, geographic location, social backgrounds. And this is really why we do cross-sectional studies, because they tell us the prevalence of a disease or a condition. It's a snapshot that can help us decide who to screen and monitor for future events. Awesome. Can I do the next one? Case control studies? Yeah. These are my favorite. Go for it, Heidi. Why, why are they your favorite? Well, this is what we use most often in infectious disease outbreak investigations. Oh, so is this what you use with your recent acute plasmomyelitis investigation? Well, no. The key to these studies are controlled patients, and there weren't any controls for us. Oh. But they do tell us a lot in foodborne outbreak in investigations. Think about that classic church pop-up. Who ate the potato salad? Who didn't? Who got sick? who stayed healthy. We often match cases to controls to adjust for things like age or sex to avoid confounding. Case control studies can be an excellent way to tease out correlation. But remember, correlation is not causation. Correlation is not causation. You got it. Cool. Next. Next up the pyramid are cohort studies that I mentioned before. So these can be a little bit tricky. They can be prospective where you follow a group of people and are looking for the outcome. And think about the PCARN studies as an example. So here they followed children who in the emergency room got CT scans for head injuries and looked down the road to see how many of them developed leukemia later on. That's a great example. Is there such a thing as a retrospective cohort? Meaning looking back? Yes. Actually, these are more common than prospective cohort studies uh, because those 
prospective ones tend to be expensive and time consuming to run. A retrospective cohort looks back over a period of time and follows a group of people to find the outcome. The difference is that by the time you're doing the research, you already know what the outcome is and what you're looking for is the exposure. That sounds confusing. It is a little bit, but here is an example to help solidify it in your mind. So we wanted to know if oxygen administration was a risk factor for developing BPD or bronchopulmonary dysplasia in NICU babies. So they looked for kids with BPD and retrospectively looked back in the charts to see if they had been exposed to oxygen and found that it was a risk factor for developing BPD. Hmm. So that's an example of a retrospective cohort. You're following an entire group of kids backwards to see who might have had a certain exposure. So you're looking for that exposure. That's true. Well, that makes sense. The next one is my favorite. It's called a randomized clinical trial. Why is it your favorite? Because there's actually a role for intervention. So up until now, the studies we have been talking about are observational. Those studies have just seen what happens and make a note of it. But with clinical trials, we can actually alter the outcome. Yay! So these are like drug trials. That's very exciting. Yes, exactly. So an example would be Spinraza. This is a drug that's going to make a huge difference for children with spinal muscular atrophy. That drug actually works so well that they ended the trial early. And that's a cool thing about clinical trials. We can sometimes tell pretty quickly if the outcome will be significant or not. Wow. So what's next? That's it. Oh, yeah. Uh, just kidding. Oh. There's actually two more on our list. Oh. <laughs> We've got systematic review and meta-analysis. Awesome. Let's do it. I can talk about systematic reviews. Sure. It's a review of the literature in a systematic way. It sounds so exciting. (laughs) (laughs) It is, I promise. It's actually a lit review, but it's kind of comprehensive. It tells you how many studies get the same result or not. That's the basis behind a Cochrane review, which is kind of awesome. It sounds mildly awesome. Oh, it's awesome. But let me tell you, Kate, there's something even better. What? A meta-analysis. Meta. (laughs) (laughs) So what does a meta-analysis add? It adds statistical power. So by adding more data in, that's what makes the power go up? You got it. You're more certain about the answer, which is why it's actually the gold standard of study design. And it's at the top of the pyramid of knowledge. The pinnacle. Cool. (laughs) So is that it? That's it. Awesome. So what are the three main knowledge nuggets that we should take away? Well, first, study design plays a major role in determining the scientific value of a research study. Second, remember that time is an important factor. So you need to take this into account when assessing a study and if you can apply it to your patients. Third, remember that the ultimate gold standard is the randomized controlled trial. So that's all I've got for you, Kate. And now we're smarter. Now we're smarter. And now you know how to ask the right questions when you're looking for studies to help guide taking care of patients. Cool. Thanks, Heidi. Bye, Kate. So that is today's dish from our top to yours. 